This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bunnell. I'm Felix Bunnell. On this special episode of Cascade of History, an interview from the archives with Brian Johnson longtime Como Radio and TV journalist in Seattle, recalling his early career at Como Radio and the day he was on the job and had to break the news that President Kennedy had been assassinated. I spoke with Brian Johnson at the studios of KUOW Public Radio in October 2013. Portions of this interview were used in the KUOW piece that year and on Cairo News Radio in 2023. So why don't you go ahead and say, uh, just for the record, head of the tape, say your name and... Okay, my name is Brian Johnson. You're not with Como anymore. No. <laughs> nope. Okay, so I mentioned the piece is gonna it's gonna air probably on the 22nd of November. Right. There's going to be tons of national coverage about the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination, Indeed. as there should be. But I think what always gets lost in these big national stories, whether it's JFK or 9/11 or whatever, is just a really local. Like, what really happened? Who was here? What do people who were here remember? And someone like you, who was, has been a journalist for most of your life. You're in From a, you're in the age position. of 18 through the age of 76. Yeah, so I want to I want to talk a little bit about you know what radio was like then, what news was like. You know, sure. It, 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 we'll probably talk yeah. for 20 minutes. It'll That's a, fine. Okay. So, so where were you on that day? Well, touch, just give me. The, I, I was at the station. I was sitting in the newsroom. This is about 10:30 our time. We had six wire machines, and for those who aren't of that era, rather than getting everything through computer and having all the stories just roll by and let you choose it, we had individual machines. One was Associated Press, another was United Press, and those were both radio wires. And then we had the United Press International A-Wire and the UPI B-Wire, which were newspaper wires. And we had a weather wire from NOAA. So we had these five machines constantly making noise in there. It must have been around 10.30 or so that the alarm went off. And there was a bell system at that time. Three bells for an urgent, five bells for a bulletin, 15 bells for a flash. Those triggered alarms with a light inside the newsroom so somebody would run in and check the wires and see what was happening. At about 12.30, the light went on, and that was when the first dispatch from Merriman Smith came in, and it said three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas. At that point, I turned to Ed Evans, who was also in the newsroom, and said, I've got to get on the air. Bring me all of the wire copy from earlier about the arrival at Dallas, what was happening in Dallas, where the parade route was taking the motorcade. 
and I'll go on the air and ad-lib. And I sat there for four minutes, not knowing whether the shots had hit the president, not knowing anything except three shots were fired at the motorcade. I also had headphones on, but the headphones weren't listening to KOMO. They were listening to ABC to see if anything was happening on ABC. I doubt if any other station in town was on the air at this point with the story because I don't think anybody else had a newspaper wire. And nothing had crossed the radio wires because at this time nobody knew the president or Governor Connolly had been hit. It was about four minutes later that the flash came, 15 bells inside the newsroom, all the alarm lights going off. In all of my time in radio, which wasn't that long at that point, it was about eight years, yeah, about eight years that I've been in radio at that time, I didn't know what 15 bells could possibly mean. But somebody came in and told me the thing has gone flash. And then the flash was Kennedy seriously wounded, perhaps fatally. And I went on the air with this, you know, and my heart is in my throat at this point. I am a young guy, 27 years old, and I am there trying to ad-lib that the President of the United States has been shot, perhaps fatally. And I had to ad-lib for about another 30 or 45 seconds before finally ABC came on and I was off the air and we joined ABC. So... You said you're a young man. Did you did you voted for Kennedy? I did. Uh, as a matter of fact, the 1960 presidential election was the first presidential election in which I could vote. I was uh, then 24, but at that time you had to be 21 in order to vote. So the first presidential election for me was the Kennedy election. At that time, you have to remember, Washington was not exactly the blue state it is nowadays. Our state went for Nixon. It elected Governor Rosalini, but the people voted for Richard Nixon. At KOMO, Bruce Vanderhoof, who was the morning disc jockey, and I, were the only two people there who announced that we were going to vote for President Kennedy, or soon-to-be President Kennedy. Everybody else in the station indicated they were going to vote for Nixon. We came in the next morning, and everybody was not exactly jubilant, with the exception of Bruce and me. But yes, I did vote for him. So let's go back a second <clears throat> to uh, because in the, in this day and age, you know, the president's movements are tracked all the time. You pretty much know, even if you're not a journalist, you kind of know where Obama is. You know what's going on. It's like it's it's like a celebrity, and Kennedy was a celebrity, I guess. But when that flash came in. And you saw it was Kennedy. Did you know that Kennedy was in Dallas that day? I did, but only because I had been on the air before uh, when three shots were fired at the motorcade in Dallas. At that point, no, I probably was totally unaware. There were stories on the wire, but I was more interested in what was happening on the local wires, the UPIB wire, the AP and the UPI, and what was happening in Washington State. The network covered the movements of a president, and the fact that he was in Dallas didn't stir up a lot of news across the country, even despite those posters which indicated wanted for treason and 
all the rest of it that were posted about Kennedy in Dallas that day. You know, nowadays there's it's there's so much segmentation. There's a few stations that are devoted completely to news on the yes. radio. There's several devoted completely to news on TV. It was different then. What was what was Como? What was radio like in 1963? Strange. <laughs> Como was perhaps one of the strangest. When we started off in the morning, there was a normal morning show with a disc jockey and newscast. We did five minutes at the top of the hour, about five minutes after the hour. We did 30 seconds at the bottom. We did a 15-minute newscast at 7.45, a half-hour newscast at noon, and a 15-minute newscast at 5.15 in the afternoon and at 11 at night. The one at night included the weather forecast from every place from Alaska to Northern California because our signal reached the entire West Coast and a lot more people listened to radio. But in between was where we were weird. We had Don McNeil's Breakfast Club, people marching around the breakfast table at 9 o'clock in the morning. We had Catherine Wise doing a cooking show at 10 a.m. The rest of the time we were playing music until the afternoon, and then we had more of an emphasis on news. But at 7 o'clock we went into dinner music, which was like Montavani and people playing lush string music. At 11 o'clock at night, we did the 15-minute Fisher's Bedtimers edition of the news, and that was followed at 11.15 by the album of classics, and we played classical music from 11.15 until 1 a.m. And I remember going to conventions at that time for the Radio Television News Directors Association, and people said, how are you rated in Seattle? I said, most of the time we're number one. And they said, what's your format? And I had a heck of a time describing it because we tried to be a little bit of everything for every person. But we were very well known in town. The only station that really made an emphasis on news prior to that time was KOL, which was at 1300, and they called it Keep On Listening in Seattle. And Merrill Ash was the news director before he was the news director at KOMO. And they had 13 Volkswagens that went out and covered the news in Seattle. But they were the only ones ahead of Como that attempted to do a lot of news. And eventually, we did consider going all news, but we never did it. And now they, you know, they point to the Kennedy assassination as a time when American television news really came of age. People spent that whole weekend gathered around their sets. Um, but and people, so a certain segment of the population listened to radio a lot for just as a as a talking appliance in the background. A tremendous so, amount. You know, I mean, the radio was on. If you went through most businesses in Seattle. Uh, during news hours, you would probably hear the radio on. Uh, it's not like today where you go into a department store and you're in the changing area and you can probably watch a television set while you sit there. The music would be piped in, either Muzak, which was elevator music, or uh, usually KOMO if people wanted news. Now, in the, in the wake of the assassination, um, you guys switched to network coverage. Was there... Um was there an attempt to kind of cover the local angle as journalism's want to do? I honestly don't remember that much. 
And the reason I don't remember is I was probably, like all the rest of America, glued to television at that time. Yes, I went out, and yes, I gathered reaction, but the amount of time we had for local news was probably not more than five minutes an hour. And I think it's pretty well described in a book that was put out by United Press later, four days, that people sat around listening to journalists who really didn't know anything. Yeah, because you're 27, and you, 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 ring, you talk about those 15 bells ringing, and that's an event, you know, a, number one, a president hasn't died in office since FDR at that point, yeah. and a president hasn't been assassinated since, what, McKinley in 1901 or something? So at age 27, was there any previous national event that you had any memory of that, that came close to anything? No, of course not, uh, except that I spent my childhood in the U.K., and I lived during the Second World War, and bombs were falling on the house, and a bomb went through the roof of my house and bounced down the stairs and didn't go off. And the church behind us burned to the ground. So I have a lot of memories which are probably things that other people don't have. My father disappeared in a bombing raid. So, you know, when you get into something like that, nothing had happened since 1943, that stuck in my mind until the earthquake of 1955, which was shortly after I arrived in this country. Or, no, wait a minute. The first earthquake was 1951. 49. Yeah, 49? Yeah, April 49. Okay. Yeah, yeah. April of 49. I got here on Christmas Day of 1948. And I was in school on Vashon Island, and some uh, I ducked underneath the desk because I thought that it may have been bombs coming by. And some of the other kids laughed because duck and cover wasn't a big deal then. And the teacher explained to the kids that this was somebody from England who had ducked under tables and various other things during bombing raids. But that earthquake struck in my mind, and then the next thing after that was really the assassination. Now, did... Um, <clears throat> I know Como, you know, was in this... Nowadays, in this big, beautiful new Fisher Plaza building and everything, but it was a different, different operation in 1963. Can you describe just sort of a kind of what what what, what did Como, what did the radio newsroom look like back? What was it like? It was probably not much bigger than a modern day studio. Uh, we had four or five people in the newsroom at that time. There was somebody who was listening to police monitors, which took up an entire wall. There was um, an intern who would help process scripts. There were three people who regularly covered news, and there was me. And I started there as a news reporter, became news director in 1962. So by 1963, I was news director at the station. But the news operation was very, very small until much later when affirmative action came along and newsrooms became the place where a lot of minorities and others were hired and newsrooms got larger. But at that time, three or four people, most people smoking right in the newsroom, um, the wires uh, behind a glass wall because they were so noisy, so you could look in and see them, but you didn't have to listen to them. Uh, various lights and alarms for um, the urgents, the bulletins, and the flashes that would come across the wire 
for Conrad, which was the emergency radio system, so there were bombed, what well, that light would go off, and there were general lights indicating that telephones were ringing. But it was hardly high tech. Um, my first recorder was a wire recorder, and it must have weighed 40 or 50 pounds. We didn't have the small little tape recorders they have today. It, it was it was fun, but it was primitive. Was it glamorous? That's a really hard question to answer because to somebody who started in the business at 18, um, was it glamorous at that time? being in a small town where everybody knew what you did. To an extent, it was glamorous. When you get to Seattle, um, I'm not so sure you could call it glamorous at that time. Television was probably more glamorous than radio at that time. But even television wasn't all that glamorous because they had about three or four reporters on the television side. And television and radio shared a newsroom when I started there. So radio was on one side, television behind some glass on the other side. I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is a special episode of Cascade of History. We're listening to an interview from 2013 with longtime Seattle radio and TV journalist Brian Johnson of KOMO. Brian was on the job in 1963 when President Kennedy was assassinated. We also talk about early parts of his career there at Como in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, back to our conversation with Brian Johnson. So you survived the Blitz as a child. You, you, know, you emigrated to the States, um, and you've been, on, been doing radio for, I think you said, about nine years at that point on, when the Kennedy assassination rolls around. <clears throat> what, is it, what is it that gives, you, gives someone what it takes to go in there and, and do calmly do your job when literally all hell is breaking loose? I suppose it's more discipline than anything else. You, you, you do anything for a while. I, I would imagine that um, if somebody's running a 911 system and there's an earthquake somewhere or somebody's calling through for help, it's your job. Uh, it's your mindset. When you leave that building and you go home, it's probably at that point where you say, oh, my God. Uh, there are examples of people breaking down, Walter Cronkite on the air, and others who have wiped away tears. There are lots of times when you get shaken to the core, but you somehow, as the English would say, soldier on, because that's your job. I mean... It's got nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination, but I can tell you there have been many occasions where I have had things happen to me where I, when I go home, I think, oh, my God. Um, Craig Sorger was a young kid who was killed in Moses Lake, and I was visiting his father, Chuck. Um, Craig was murdered by two companions. And on Chuck's desk, there was a box. And I said, what's that? He said, that's Craig's ashes. I never spent enough time with him when he was alive. You know, and you think, how am I going to ask another question? Yeah, wow. But somehow you do. Yeah. And it's, it's that, it's not a detachment, but it's the ability to compartmentalize, do your job, and then when you get away from it, you think, oh, my God. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I imagine most of the stories you worked on 
at Como were about, you know, Mayor Clinton doing this or Governor Rosalini doing this <laughs> or, you know, for, you know, Metro cleanup is underway. You know, Jim yeah. Ellis is doing this. And then the scale seems to shift just radically. Uh, yeah, they do. And it, it, they shift all the time. When the Ozark Hotel and 7th Avenue apartment fires happened about a week apart and 20 people died in downtown Seattle during the time Clinton was mayor. Over in 13 people were shot at the Wami Club. Again, these are stories, you know, right after the shooting at, um, at the Wami, I talked to Vimar, who was one of the few people who lost a relative there who was willing to talk. It was not easy to talk to her. The other thing that is interesting about radio and television at that time is that most stories, regardless of how significant they were, whether it was WAMI, whether it was 20 people dying in two fires in Seattle, stories were a minute long, a minute and 30 seconds long. It was unheard of that regular programming would just go away. And for close to four days, all you heard was one story. Nowadays, you've come to expect that. There is a big traffic tie-up, television's on, live for an hour and a half. That didn't happen. It was a minute, and you went back to your normal operation. Five minutes of local news on the hour, and if you tried to go six, they would probably have fired you because there were 18 commercials that had to be in every hour, and that's the way it was. But when the assassination came, all of that changed. I don't know if that led to the expectation that television would be there no matter what when big news broke, but it probably had that impact. And the people's hunger for news was clearly shown with people crowding around television sets and people going to the homes of people who had television sets. Not everybody did. Yeah, and the way it played out over four days, it's just, I mean, the, the act, you know, in terms of the, you know, the assassination on Friday and then, you know, um, Oswald, you know, in custody on Saturday and then yeah. Sunday being shot by Ruby and then, the, the, you know, the, the, the plane arriving in D.C. late Friday night. It's just it's it's you couldn't have scripted it that I mean it's it's yeah. such a amazing narrative arc it's so bizarre yeah it it almost seems like a television production as you look at it and I think that's what's fed a lot of the conspiracy theories too is the fact that everything seemed so scripted I mean could anybody have thought that the shooting of a Dallas police officer some distance away would lead to the arrest of a suspect. Could anybody have thought that somebody who was known to police but thought to have underworld ties and who ran a nightclub could get through police security and shoot Oswald? And then the scene of John John saluting on Monday. I mean, it all seemed like something you might watch today on hostages. Yeah. And, it's, and then the, the backstory with Oswald having lived in the Soviet Union and done this fair yeah. play for Cuba stuff, it's just, it's, it's, it makes my head spin. I mean, it's, but it's, it's just so bizarre. Yeah, well, they, they've indicated, I think at that time, and this is something that America may not realize today, 
that at that time, I would guess that 70, 80, 90% of the people had no doubt that it was one person, and they had no doubt that Ruby was just somebody who was enchanted with Kennedy and upset, known to police, got in there and shot somebody. Because security then is not what it is now. I cannot even imagine a president riding through with the bulletproof glass windows down, with the top down. Sure, he had Secret Service agents around the car, but but as as it played out, the shots could have come from the knoll. The shots could have come from the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. They could have come from anywhere because there was an open target. And how somebody who was accused of killing the president of the United States would be paraded in the open before television cameras is just unimaginable. And then you have... Later, Bobby Kennedy, with television cameras running in Sirhan Sirhan, June. Yeah. It was a different era. Nowadays, I don't think people could get that close. I hope. I yeah. trust. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, the, the details are just amazing. Um, in terms of Seattle in those days, um, everyone knows Seattle nowadays. It's this, you know, it's this hip grunge, coffee, all this stuff that's only really in the last 15, 20 years. I bet, you know, if you could describe what Seattle was like in 1963 for someone who's maybe just moved here in the last five years. Well, in in 1961, if you wanted nightlife, you went to Portland. I mean, that's what Seattle was. It was sort of backwoods. It was very quiet. I mean, if you wanted to gamble, yeah, there was the turf and there was Ben Paris and they would have gambling games going in the basement. You could probably find gambling somewhere in the International District, at the WAMI and various others, but you wouldn't get in unless you were pretty well known. Seattle had virtually no nightlife at all. Um, my, when Clinton was mayor, I remember he was a very, very strong Methodist, and I remember that he went bananas when he found out there was gambling in town. And they were going to go after Catholic bingo. I mean, this is a place now that's pretty wide open for uh, casinos. But in those days, there was controversy over whether or not Catholic churches should be allowed to continue bingo. And as I said, Portland was the place to go. Then came the World's Fair. And Gracie Hansen with semi-nude girls uh, on the gay way, which they would never name anything anymore, which was the, the ride area of the World's Fair. That sort of turned Seattle around a little bit. <coughs> but Seattle was still being born when that ended in October of 1962. We just started moving toward a modern city. In 1963, it was still pretty straight-laced around here. I was a student at the University of Washington in 62. My major was Russian. My neighbor turned me into the police because I had a subscription to Pravda. I mean, this was, this was sort of a backwards-type area. The police came out, and I said, look, I want to work for the State Department. Yeah, I'm taking Russian. So did uh, you know, 
again, the cliches about, you know, this, the Kennedy assassination was this major loss of innocence for the country, right? I mean, everybody, all the baby boomers in particular and people like who were your age at that time who had voted for Kennedy and saw this whole, you know, new horizon and everything. Um, did it, I mean, is it, is it able to, can you discuss on, in regional terms or local terms, did it do anything to Seattle? Was there anything, because, you know, Kennedy had visited here several times. He'd spoken at the UW yeah. for the Centennial yeah, and all this stuff. Was there any kind of, I mean, Rosalini was a close was close to Kennedy and well there were, there was a talk at the time uh, that he might choose somebody from the west coast to run with him it was not going to be Al Rosalini because um one of the things that worked against um John Kennedy was the fact he was catholic at that time many many people thought the united states would never have a catholic president I mean, it's hard for people to even imagine that right now. But but that was sort of the way it was. We had alien land laws on the books of Washington State at that time. If you were not a citizen of the United States, you could not earn property, own property. And that was because of the waves of Chinese laborers that came to this area uh, back in gold rush days. And also, I don't know if it had anything to do with blacks at that time. I don't think so. I think it was more what people used to describe, and I never used the term, but I've heard it, yellow peril, so that that the alien land laws were on the books. They, uh, They have been declared unconstitutional. It was put on the ballot in our state. And this was probably 62, or maybe it was 60. I'm not sure. It could have been 60. And the people voted to keep them. That was the nature of Washington State at that time. So did the Kennedy assassination make any difference? Camelot ended. And I think it did put a lot of focus on things like alien land laws, on the way we treated people, on, um, on everything that he believed suddenly became front burner. I mean... People would never have predicted that LBJ would have been the author of things that led to voting rights, that led to human rights, that led to recognition of things that Abraham Lincoln couldn't have imagined. But I think that the Kennedy assassination pushed LBJ in that direction, and I think it pushed the country in that direction. And it undoubtedly pushed us in that direction. We had always been sitting out there on the left coast. We always had a strong socialist communist movement inside our state. And that, to a certain extent, was fed. And I don't want anybody to think that all of the progress was made as a result of socialist thought or communist thought. But... There was a residual well of equality feeling, or I don't know quite what to call it, in our state. And when that happened, that suddenly blossomed forward, not led anymore by socialists or communists, but by average people who started taking a look at how we treat other people. And yeah, it made a huge difference. Now, did you uh, did you cover any of those previous Kennedy visits when he was at the UW in '61? Or I know he was supposed to be here for the World's Fair, but he canceled because of the yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis. Or did you run across him at all in his in his travels here? No, I think that 
I was not news director at that time, and I think because Washington State always regarded itself as sort of left out when it came to presidential visits, they always seemed to be canceled at the last minute. That when one happened, I think the news director went out there, so I'm pretty sure Merrill Ash covered him when he, okay. he was here in 1961. Okay, okay. Um, so... <laughs> So it's like, because Rosalini obviously was Catholic, right? So we had a Catholic yes. governor when we had a yeah. Catholic. I never thought about that before. You, what was um, and did, we have this short little piece. You might not be able to hear it though, from that you did for that they played on ABC. Um, do you remember talking to Rosalini in the aftermath? I don't. I no. do not. Okay. Um, and I know that it, the tape exists. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it. Um, but I think that it was so overwhelmed by what was going on that what I did at that time is not even in full memory. What's in full memory are the events of what happened. So I'm probably like most Americans, you know, they say, where were you when X, Y happened? Well, I was in the newsroom doing a job, so it's very difficult for me to say, okay, I remember where I was. Oh, it was 10.30 on a Friday, I was working. And that was my job. It's So it's not like, where were you when the earthquake hit? Where were you when this? Um, most of the time, the answer was, if it happened during the day, I was at work. And do I remember what I did? No. Out in Washington State, an observation from our correspondent, Byron Johnson of ABC affiliate, KOMO in Seattle. Governor Rosalini of the state of Washington has this reaction to today's tragic news of President Kennedy's assassination. What a uh, tremendous shock uh, and uh, unbelief that something like this could happen in my country such as ours. It's uh, almost inconceivable that uh, this thing should happen. The Speaker of the Washington State House of Representatives, William S. Davis, spoke can turn the fatal shooting almost unbelievable. He added, we may have to keep people, such as the President of the United States, from participating in public events to protect those who make the sacrifice of public service. The governor was asked if he felt it was becoming increasingly dangerous to hold public office. Rosalini answered. I don't think it's becoming more dangerous, no, but I think that uh, we can never take uh, complete precautions. Uh, we must take all precautions possible, but uh, you can never take complete precautions because, uh, as was indicated in this instance with our state secret service guard uh, around the president, uh, if somebody wants to do something like this, even as the president himself declared uh, here uh, some months back, uh, it can be done. Brian Johnson, ABC affiliate, KLMO, Seattle. And here, back in the ABC radio newsroom in New York, virtually every corner of the world is in mourning tonight over the assassination of President Kennedy. Does it hurt your feelings that the ABC anchor called you Byron Johnson? No. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Magnuson called me Byron. And he did it, although he knew better, and he did it all the way through. He did it even after he was defeated. Hello, Byron! Well, no. <laughs> This has been a special episode of Cascade of History, presenting a 2013 interview with longtime Como radio and TV journalist Brian Johnson. Cascade of History airs live Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Pacific time on Space 101.1 FM in Seattle and streams everywhere at space101fm.org. 
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.